and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Here in Atlanta, at commencement ceremonies at Morehouse College, the speaker announced he was paying the student loans of all the graduates. How do you think they responded? Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series, Ruth, a story of God's steadfast love, with this message entitled, The Cost of Steadfast Love, which covers Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders in the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, then I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. In three more verses that were not included in the reading, but are critical, I think, to understand this part of the story. You'll see them on the screen, verses 13, 14, and 15. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without what? A redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. We're now in the fourth week of a, of a six-week series out of this fascinating Old Testament book, the book of Ruth. If you're joining us for the first time today, let me catch you up a little bit of what this story is all about. There are three primary characters in this story. First is a Jewish lady by the name of Naomi. Naomi, years earlier, and her husband Elimelech had come into a hard time in Israel, so they went away to another country, the country of Moab. 
There she had two sons, and both of her sons married women that were Moabites, not Jewish. Well, as time went on, neither of those sons and daughter-in-laws had children. Her husband died, and then both of her sons died. And she found herself in a very, very hard spot there in Moab. And so she decided, I'm going to go back to Israel. She was very embittered, very disappointed in what life was all about. It was a very hard time for her. And so she decided, I'll go back to Israel. And one of the daughters-in-law said, I'm going to stay in Moab. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, said, no, I will go with you to Israel. Though I'm a Moabite and not in Israeli, not Jewish, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And part of the whole story here is that whereas Naomi had become an embittered person that really didn't believe in the goodness of God, for some reason Ruth, the Moabite, believed in the goodness of God. And we see God's faithfulness and loving kindness coming through. So Naomi is one key character, Ruth, for whom the book is named is a second. And then after they come back to Israel, in their poverty, they're doing whatever they can to eat. And Ruth goes out to glean from the field, and she happens to go to a field of a man named Boaz. And part of the Old Testament's law was for those that gleaned uh, the harvest would allow a little bit to be left for those who were impoverished. Interesting to see how the law of God took care of the needy. And so their, their Ruth was gleaning, and Boaz noticed there that, that she was doing that and said, leave plenty for her and protect her and don't let her be harmed. And then finally in chapter three, Ruth does a very bold thing, finding out that Boaz was a distant relative, one who could be what is called a kinsman redeemer that we'll explain in a moment. She actually goes to Boaz and suggests and asks, would you be my kinsman redeemer? And what we've read here in chapter four is the next part of that story where Boaz says, yes, I'm willing to do that for you. This is a story about redemption and hope. And this is a story about the steadfast love of God for people like you and for people like me. This is a message that we desperately need to hear. Let me give you the context a little more. The book of Ruth here takes place in what was the days of the Wild West for Israel, so to speak, the time of the judges. Israel had come into the promised land, but there were not yet kings that were reigning over the land. It was a very chaotic and lawless time of the judges. In fact, the last verse of the book of Judges said everybody did what was right in their own eyes. A dark and dangerous place. But the book of Ruth is like a ray of light in a dark and dangerous place. And this book portrays Ruth's God and our God as a God who leads distraught and desperate people from being empty to being full. Distraught and desperate people from feeling isolated and forsaken to feeling loved and included. And this is a book that portrays our God as a God who redeems. Our God as a God who restores. He redeems people, places, and things, but especially he redeems his people. Now, the problem is this. You and I have a problem when it comes to this topic of redemption and restoration. And here's the problem you have and here's the problem that I have. We all tend to ignore or minimize the costliness of redemption. We all tend to ignore or minimize the costliness of restoring things and making things right. But if you stop to think about it, whenever something is broken, it is, if it is to be repaired and made right, somebody has to bear the cost of paying something, right? It always happens. 
fact, let me give you a little humorous story to illustrate this. And it's the story of two middle school boys. And if you have raised middle school boys, you know this story could literally go anywhere, right? It really could. Now, I'm not going to give you the names of these two boys in order to protect the guilty. Not the innocent, but the guilty. Uh, this could have been me and a buddy of mine back in the day. This could have been my brother and one of his buddies back in the day. This could have been my boys or one of those boys and his buddy. Or this could be any of the boys that my wife has taught in the last 15 years of teaching middle school right here. Could be any of those. So the boys will remain nameless, but it is a true story. And the story is that these boys were playing in their neighborhood and out in a grassy area. And it was on a curved road, just a, a road with one lane going in each direction. And every few minutes, uh, a car going about 30 or 40 miles an hour would come around that curve. And between the grassy area and the road, there was a fence and there were some bushes and there were some trees. And dropping off of those trees were some hard pods that felt just like little hand grenades in their little 13-year-old hands. You can probably guess where this is going, right? Somewhere they got the brilliant idea to peek out from behind the bushes and the trees, and when a car was coming, they would each launch a pod as high as they could to see if they could hit a car. Well, my wife has a saying about middle school boys, and here it is. One boy, one brain. Two boys, half a brain. <laughs> Three boys or more, no brains at all. It's, the math seems wrong, but it's right. It's really true. Well, these boys were overachievers. Now, there were only two of them, but nobody had a brain. And so they start launching these pods over the trees. And never in their wildest dreams did they think they would actually hit a car, but they did. They both hit the same car right on the top of the roof. Then never in their wildest dreams did they think that the car would stop, but it did. And never in their wildest dreams did they think that the driver of the car would get out of the car, but he did. And then never ever in their wildest dreams did, he, did they think he would cross the street and climb the fence and chase them down. <laughs> but he did. Well, the boys gave fictitious names, but one of them gave his accurate home phone number. If you're gonna lie, you gotta see it all the way through. <laughs> well, uh, the boys were identified, parents were talked with, the boys were talked with, the car was dented and scratched. So here's the question. Could there be a repair, a restoration? Could there be a redemption without somebody paying something? And the answer is obviously no. Either the offender would pay or the offended would pay or a kinsman redeemer would pay. And those were the options. You see, this whole story of Boaz and Ruth hinges upon this odd concept of a kinsman redeemer. What was a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer was someone who would intervene for a family member and make a wrong thing right, to bring restoration and redemption to someone who'd come, up, who'd come into a hard situation. In the concept of Middle Eastern families, not only was the immediate family huge, the extended family was huge, very important. And so if a, according to Old Testament law, if somebody came into a place of being destitute and, and having just great tragedy come into their lives, if someone was an immediate member of the family, 
a son, a brother, a father, then that person was obligated and had the opportunity to be a kinsman redeemer, to step in and make it right. But if nobody had an immediate family member and they came into this terrible situation, then an extended family member did not have an obligation to be a kinsman redeemer, but did have the opportunity and the right to do so, the right of first refusal, so to speak, to step in. And that was the kind of relationship between Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. A kinsman redeemer did a lot of different things. Caleb described it last week a little bit. Next week, Jeff is gonna talk about it even more. But let me summarize it this way. Three things a kinsman, kinsman redeemer could do. First of all, a kinsman redeemer could redeem property when the family had, was, had lost it or was in danger of losing it. And that was the case right here. There was property here in Naomi and Ruth's family. It needed to be redeemed. And Boaz stepped forward to be a kinsman redeemer to purchase that property. Secondly, a kinsman redeemer could redeem somebody out of indentured servanthood inside of Israel or out of slavery to a non-Israelite person or country. Thankfully, here in the story of Naomi and Ruth, that was not their case. And then thirdly, a very odd thing to us, a kinsman redeemer could provide an heir for a deceased brother or relative who died without having an heir. Now, that seems very odd to us, but at that time and place, for a widow to grow old and not have a son or a son-in-law to take care of her was to put her in a very, very difficult, even an impossible situation. And if somebody had their lineage to be discontinued, that was a thing of great, great, great and deep loss. And so the law of God provided for this. It provided for the opportunity if someone died without having an heir, then a brother or a relative could marry that widow. And in marrying that widow, then perhaps could provide an heir. But that heir would not be an heir of his, but it would be an heir of the deceased, as if it were the deceased's uh, child. That is the situation here we see with Boaz and with Ruth. And so chapter four gives us a contrast. I'm gonna leave a lot of this explanation next, next week for Jeff, because Jeff is gonna talk about this same passage, but with an application different than this, this week, and very important to understand the difference between these two possible kinsmen redeemers. One was a man who was never named. He had an opportunity redeem, to redeem, but did not because it was too costly. And then the contrast to that is with Boaz. Boaz had no obligation to redeem, but he willingly chose the costly, the sacrificial path of being the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Now, with all of that, why is that important? Well, here's what you need to know for today's sermon. Here's what you need to know about Ruth and about you and about me. And here it is. Ruth's redemption was costly. Ruth's redemption was costly to Boaz. It came to her at a great cost to him. And how that applies to you and me is this. Our redemption has been costly. Our redemption has come not at a little price. It has come at a great price, a staggering price, an unimaginable price. And for us, there was only one possible kinsman redeemer who could step forward and take care of this. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? Why are we talking about that today? It was because of this. Ruth and Boaz lived in a dangerous and dark time in every imaginable way, physically, materially, spiritually. 
We live in a dark and dangerous time, maybe not so much materially and physically, but we do live in a dark and dangerous time and a dark and dangerous place spiritually. And one of the reasons is this. There are a lot of teachings and a lot of belief systems parading around out there pretending to be biblical Christianity, and they simply are not. And the way I would put it to you is this. The danger of American Christianity, and I'll put that in air quotes, the danger of American Christianity is not a Christless Christianity, but it is a crossless Christianity. Let me say that again. The danger of American Christianity is not a Christless Christianity. Jesus can still be very popular and well-received, but it is a crossless Christianity. The teaching of Jesus as one who was a great moral example, thumbs up. The teaching of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb for the sake of those who live immoral lives, that's thumbs down. Jesus as an example of doing good deeds, thumbs up. Jesus has, who, as someone who died in the place of people that failed to do good deeds, thumbs down. So there are Christian principles of living and Christian values, but without the cross. The desire to have an American Christian or a Christian America, but without the cross. Or a desire for social justice, but without the cross. Or a Christian way of living, but without the cross or general spirituality, but without the cross. And so here is our danger, you'll see it on the screen, it is the danger of a crossless Christianity. That is the danger we face. Now the question is, how do we get here in our culture and in our time? Why did this become true? And I can give you, I think, three reasons. First of all is this, we have been deceived by a false gospel. We've been deceived by a false gospel. About 100 years ago, there were leaders of thought and religion and philosophy in Western Europe and in America that really began to disbelieve the spiritual parts of the Christian message. And so remaining was the idea that, yes, we should do good for other people. But gone were the beliefs of all of the supernatural, the miracles of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And gone was the belief that Jesus was required to die in the place of sinners, that somehow his death took away and takes away the sins of those who believe. Instead, the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, was just reduced to be an act of moral influence. Jesus as an example of someone who didn't fight back and who was so peace-loving and, 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 and who would die for his followers, so to speak, to take the heat so it would come to him and not to the other people. Yes, yeah, so out of that version of Christianity, there are a lot of deeds of love being encouraged, but ironically, there is no Savior who has died in our place because of his love. And so, we become deceived by a false gospel. A second problem is that we have perhaps become embarrassed by the true gospel, by the radical nature of the true gospel. There are also churches, and I'm thankful that ours is not one of them, but there are churches out there that would say, oh yes, we believe that Jesus died for sinners and we believe his death is the only way of salvation. But we're so caught up in wanting to be seeker driven and seeker sensitive and palatable and acceptable to people, you'll never hear us talk about that until you get into the life of the church. We won't talk about it on a Sunday morning, but if you start talk, taking classes in our church, well then we'll talk about it, then we'll lead up to it. And so we've got two problems in our culture. There are people that are deceived by false gospel, and there are leaders who have become embarrassed by the radical nature of the true gospel. And then the third problem is this. 
that many of us has become confused, genuinely confused by the costly nature of redemption and we've come to believe in cheap grace, cheap grace. There was a theologian and leader in the middle of the 20th century by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he talked about cheap grace and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant was cheap grace is grace without discipleship. And that message still needs to go out there. If you're following Jesus, if you've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, that involves being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. That's one form of cheap grace. But today I'm talking about another form of cheap grace. And the other form of cheap grace is simply this, grace without the cross. That somehow God could just magically and mystically out of grace forgive sinners and declare them righteous instead of sinful and never give to them judgment. And there was never the necessity of anyone bearing their judgment in their place. That's cheap grace. That's losing the importance and the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the problem that we face. I would put it this way, that here's the big lie or we might say the big misunderstanding The big lie is because our redemption is free for us and cost us nothing, we falsely believe that it also cost Jesus nothing. That's not the case. If that's the big lie, then I want you to also see, here's the liberating truth that we believe. At a great sacrifice, Christ our kinsman redeemer has sought us, wed us, provide for us, and makes us beautiful. Would you read that aloud with me, please? I want you to sink in. I want you to remember it. The liberating truth we believe at a great sacrifice, Christ our kinsman redeemer has sought us, wed us, provides for us and makes us beautiful. In this book, as we've already said, Christ is the greater Boaz and we are the more desperate and destitute Ruth. Think about it for a moment as we compare ourselves to Ruth. Ruth was impoverished. She could do little to help herself. But we are so impoverished that we're able to do nothing for ourselves. We cannot even lift a finger to save ourselves and help ourselves. We are not just sick in our sin and trespasses. We're dead in our sin and, and trespasses. We can do nothing to help ourselves. That's how impoverished we are. That's how unable we are. Secondly, here in this story, Ruth pursued Boaz as a redeemer. We would never pursue Jesus left to ourselves. Instead, he has done all the pursuing toward us in his grace and in his mercy. Thirdly, uh, Ruth here is commended as a virtuous woman, but we, we have no virtue at all by which we could recommend ourselves to our kinsman redeemer. So we are the more desperate, we are the more destitute, we are the more impoverished version of Ruth. Also, Jesus is the greater Boaz. Boaz redeemed and wed Ruth at a great price. But to be our kinsman redeemer, Jesus has paid an unimaginable price. To be our redeemer, Jesus has paid a staggering price. To be our redeemer, Jesus has paid a price that is worth more than this whole world and this whole universe that kind of costly redemption. Do you appreciate it? Do you believe it? Has it moved your life and your heart? How costly is this redemption that has come to us? 
I know of no better way to describe the costliness and the price of our redemption than to tell you what the scriptures say in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter puts it this way, knowing that you were redeemed and you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but how? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, in a way that we do not understand. Jesus could become one of us, and he did become one of us to be our kinsman. He became truly man, and they're truly man, truly one of us, and yet holy as God incarnate. His blood was holy and pure, and his life was holy and pure. And when God's wrath was poured out upon him upon the cross, judgment was executed there in our place. And there's forgiveness, and there's a turning aside of judgment. And from that, everything else flows. Reconciliation, repair, redemption, restoration, provision, all of those things flow out of the cost of Jesus shedding his blood for us. That's the price by which you were redeemed, and that's the price by which I was redeemed. How central is this message of the cross to be for the way we live and the way we believe and the way we teach? This is how central. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly and foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We were pursued and wooed and won over at a great price. We were saved out of our despair and our spiritual poverty at a great price. We were betrothed and wed at a great price. And then we were provided for, and we were made beautiful at a great price, the price of the blood of God the Son. That's the cost of our redemption. That's the price of God's steadfast love for you and for me. I want you to imagine Ruth on her wedding day. Here she finds that, yes, Boaz is willing now to be her kinsman redeemer, and she must have been thrilled. And like any bride-to-be, she starts to think of her wedding day. You know, the book of Ruth never says that Ruth was beautiful. There are other stories of women in the Old Testament, and when they were beautiful, the scriptures say so. That's never said of Ruth. And as one commentator has put it, if perhaps early in her life she was beautiful, the years of tears, the years of grief, the years of hard labor had probably stolen her beauty away from her. And however she might have looked in and of herself, so to speak, like every bride, she dreamed of being beautiful on her wedding day. But in her poverty, how was she going to afford to do that? She had barely anything at all. Here's what I think happened. I think Boaz, as her kinsman redeemer, did this. I think he went out and he found the most beautiful wedding dress that could be found at that time and that place. And he brought that beautiful wedding dress back and he gave it to Ruth. I think he went and he found the most beautiful jewelry that he could afford to get. And he got that beautiful, beautiful jewelry like Ruth had never worn before in her whole life. And he gave it to Ruth. And then he came and he, he found the most beautiful shoes. You women have something about shoes. I don't quite get it, I'll tell you. I don't understand it, but it's there. So maybe Boaz knew that. And besides the dress and besides the jewelry, 
He got shoes that she would be proud of and excited about. And then if there were people who professionally did hair and makeup and all that stuff, I don't even know what you call that kind of person. But if those existed back then, Boaz probably found somebody that would do that too. And here's the truth of the matter. I think on her wedding day, Ruth was beautiful. And she was beautiful because Boaz had paid that price and paid that cost to make sure that she looked as beautiful as she could look on their wedding day. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament where Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And it teaches that we as God's people, we are the bride of Christ. And this is what it says in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That's the cross. He put himself on the cross for her. He bled for her. He died for her so that he might sanctify her and make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself as his bride in splendor and in beauty without even a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing, so she, that she might be holy and completely without a blemish. Brides, I'm sure that every one of you were beautiful on your wedding day, but could you be said to have been without even a blemish? But when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at that great day, he will have made us so beautiful. There will be no spot. There will be no wrinkle. There will be no blemish because we will be wrapped in the perfect righteousness of Christ, a gift of righteousness, a gift of holiness, a gift of beauty. And how did that come about, my friends? It came about because of the cross of Jesus Christ. May we magnify the cross and believe in the cross and keep it central in every part of our lives. Every part of the Christian life flows from the cross. Your forgiveness, your power over sin, your ability to say no to temptation, the security of your life in front of those things that make you insecure, it all comes from the cross. Let me put it this way, here are the results. The results of this cross-centered life. What does the gospel produce in us? These four things. First of all, the gospel produces humility and gratitude. A number of years ago when I was in seminary and living in Chicago, I was in a gathering of, of people and some of those people there had heard myself and a friend of mine begin to teach about the sovereign work of God and salvation and just how powerful the cross of Christ is. And as she began to ask more and more questions about what we were teaching, and asked for more and more definition. Finally, she began to understand more. And suddenly in our conversation, her eyes got wide and her mouth sort of dropped open. I said, do you understand? And she said, I do. I said, how does that make you feel? She said, I feel humbled and I feel grateful. Let me say to you, if you have never been moved to feel humbled and deeply grateful for the work of Jesus on your behalf, you probably don't get it yet at least on an emotional level. If we believe this gospel, the power of this cross, it will make, make us humbled and grateful. Secondly, we will have security through love. The more secure you, the more loved you are, the more secure you are. And we can never be more loved than we are. If you believe in the love of Jesus Christ for you like this, you should be one of the most secure people on the face of the earth that I should be and you should be. To the degree that we are insecure, we're not believing in the cross of Jesus. He who spared not his own son for us, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And if Jesus has bled for us and died for us, he'll take care of every one of your needs and he'll take care of every one of my needs 
And so there is security that comes through love. Thirdly, there is daily repentance and faith. Chapter three of Ruth tells the story there of Ruth seeking Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. She goes to him and basically seeks refuge under his wings, so to speak. That's the picture of everyday living for a Christian. We turn to Christ in our first conversion and we seek refuge in him, repenting from sin and believing in him as our kinsman redeemer. And that's what we're to do every day of our lives, daily repenting and believing, daily repenting and believing, daily repenting and believing, daily seeking refuge in him for every need that we have. Then lastly, here's the, other, the last thing, is that we become transformed to be channels of his steadfast love. This book teaches if you have experienced the hesed of God, the steadfast loving kindness of God, you will begin to give it away to other people. And that's what the sermon next week is all about. I hope you'll be back to hear it. I'll end with asking you this question. It's a question for your consideration and your, your uh, uh, prayers and your thoughts, your reflection this week, and it's basically this. Is my heart moved by the cost of redemption? Christianity is aimed at our behaviors, yes. It's aimed at our minds and our beliefs, yes. But it's mostly aimed at the affections of our hearts. So let me ask you, has your heart been moved by the price of redemption? Has your heart been moved by the cost of God's steadfast love for you? I always like to end my sermons with a prayer. Today I want to end with a prayer, not that I've written, and not one that just comes spontaneously out of my heart, but a prayer that was written several centuries ago by a Christian leader. It's in a book called Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers written by Christian leaders of two or 300 years ago. But it's called Love Lusters, It Shines at Calvary. Would you stand please as we read this? The musicians can start to come onto the stage and grab their places. I want to ask you to read it aloud with me, but I do want to ask you to look at it very carefully on the screen and as I read, to soak it in with your eyes as I read that you would soak it in with your ears. And that you would ask God that he would make it soak into your heart as well. And here is the prayer. My Father, enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips, supply words that proclaim love lusters, it shines at Calvary. There grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son, made a transgressor, a curse, a sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. Christ was all anguish, that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. He was stripped, that I might be clothed wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory. O Father who spared not thine only son that thou mightest spare me, all this transfer, thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. O that my every breath might be ecstatic praise my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, sin, Satan baffled, defeated, and destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open, 
go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross. Show me the cross. Show me the cross. Oh Lord, this is our prayer today, that every day in our lives, you would show us clearly this cross of Jesus Christ. May we believe with all of our hearts this transfer of our despair and destitute state onto Jesus and that he took care of that and that you have transferred to us all the blessings of his son. And oh, Father, we ask you today that we would believe that so deeply that it would change our lives. Lord, thank you that our kinsman redeemer has died for us. Thank you that even now as we pray, oh, Father, that our kinsman redeemer is there at the right side of your throne and he is pleading his blood on our behalf that we might be your sons and daughters. May we give him our praise and all of our love and adoration. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.